Welcome back, podcast fans. I'm your host, Annette Hines, and this is Parenting Impossible, the special needs survival podcast. I know I have a bit of a cold, so I sound a little nasally and blah, kind of whiny today. Uh, So sorry. I will keep my introduction short today for that reason. I did want to kick off Women's History Month. And it's not just the celebration of women's history this month. Of course, it's the celebration of women and our contribution to society, our contribution to our families. And really, we want to take a beat and really think about self-care and how we, you know, all the roles that we play, right? Um, We... Some of us are our mothers, some of us are our daughters, some of us are um, our partners, all of the all of the places and spaces that we hold in society, in our communities. And so this is a podcast for the disability community, whether we are someone who identifies as a person with a disability, whether we are caring for someone with a disability, whether we are professional in the disability community, whether we identify as an ally, whether we are someone who just wants to know more about our community and um, how we can be part of the disability community. I just applaud you and thank you for being here. And, and for sharing your grace. Thank you so much. So March as Women's History Month um, really gives us an opportunity to, to talk and to share. So we want to share our stories and we want to also do more than just share our stories, but we want to share our strength, right? We want to share our path. We want to provide some support and provide that next thing, that next right thing that we're going to do. And I've been thinking a lot about what is that next right thing that we do. So many of you um, probably have already heard that Judy Human passed away this weekend and She was a revolutionary in the disability community. She was fundamental in getting Section 504 passed and then the ADA and so on and so on and so on. If you haven't seen the documentary Crip Camp, you have to see it. It's on Netflix. Um, I'll be talking about that, uh, all different pieces of Judy Human's life and um, and our battle and we haven't won the war yet on disability inclusion and uh, fighting ableism, but Judy was a warrior and she will be so missed. Those are shoes that we cannot fill. She was a personal hero of mine and so many of us. Uh, her book, Being Human. Um, is just, um, let me see if I have it here. I have to, I'll pull it out for you, um, is uh, not to be missed. And um, we'll, we'll say more about that in future episodes. She was such a warrior. Um, 
that she always talked about and made me think about, you know, it's not this long journey that you need to think about. You just need to think about what is that next right thing that you need to do. And that makes it easier. That makes it easier to take that next step because otherwise we can become paralyzed with fear. And so that's what I want you to think about as we look at and, and, you know, and think about and share stories this month of women that are, you know, I don't know if you want to call them heroes. Um, hero is such a big word. It's only four letters, but such a big word. We don't need that kind of label. We just want to talk about what is that next right thing that you do? And that right thing is right for you. It doesn't have to be that big thing in the world. It, it could be just that next right thing for you or for you and your family. So I've had a lot of decisions to make in my life lately. Uh, I've kind of skirted around the edge of them. I think I'm going to get brave and talk to you about them. It's hard to talk about things publicly that have such deep impact. And, you know, I, I think I, I am going to kind of open up here on the podcast and talk about them. It's hard when you feel like the world is coming at you. But I always like to say the worst thing has already happened to me. My daughter died. I'm not sure that anything can top that, honestly. Um, I've been through a lot in my life, most of which I have not talked about on this podcast. And I just don't think that anybody else could hurt me worse. So um, I have a lot of faith and I just keep trying to do the next right thing. So um, on the podcast this week, I'm really excited to share with you a wonderful person. Uh, she is um, someone who took some adversity in her life, like so many people that are on the podcast with me. And she had tur has turned it into something that she is sharing with the world. She's sharing her gifts with the world. Her name is Danielle Sullivan. She's the founder of Neurodiverging Coaching, which is an online sliding scale coaching practice supporting a worldwide diverse clientele with issues relating to neurodiversity, ADHD, autism, and executive functioning for adults and for families who are uh, parenting neurodiverse kids. And she, um, she her, her larger mission is to help neurodivergent folks find the resources that they or we, as I feel included in that, uh, in that group, need to live better lives as individuals and um, to, to further disability awareness and social justice, you know, I love that, social justice efforts that will improve all of our lives. And, and um, she supports a strength-based and evidence-based both assessment and skill building um, paradigm. And she's committed to all of us taking care of one another. 
great conversation with Danielle. I really um, admire her and really enjoyed this podcast. I always say it, I'm the luckiest gal in the world. I get to meet so many wonderful people and learn so many great things and talk about things that interest me so much. So thank you so much, Danielle, for being on the show. And as always, if you have any questions, if you have any comments, please share them with us. If you have any topics that interest you, please let me know. Go ahead and hit me up. I would love to hear from you. Here we go. Hello, Danielle. Thank you for coming to the show. And I really want to dig in a little bit to, you know, how did you get here? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Welcome, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Annette. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Um, my name is Danielle Sullivan. I am the founder and head coach at Neurodiverging Coaching, which is a uh, coaching practice sort of dedicated to neurodivergent adults. And we also do parent coaching. So um, we work with parents who are having some kind of struggle or challenge with their kiddos, all kinds of kiddos, but a lot of neurodivergent families too. Um, and I am an autistic person and an ADHD person, and I have kiddos of my own who are uh, about eight and 10, who are also autistic ADHD plus some other stuff. And um, they have really energized me and invigorated me to, to, to bring my, my whole self to the coaching practice and to really uh, start to get a handle on some of the most common, um, I would say like communication challenges or, or because neurodivergent kiddos are just like neurotypical kiddos. They have great strengths, but the way that a lot of us in the Americas are taught to parent doesn't always suit our neurodivergent kiddos needs. So yeah, right. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm really excited to talk to you about a number of different things, but take me back a little bit. When did you discover or did somebody discover for you that you were divergent? I am a late diagnosed autistic. I was not caught until after my son was caught autistic. So I present, you know, autism has, they always say it's a spectrum. There's lots of right. different presentations of autism, right? And I don't present in a stereotypical way. And so, you know, I was born in 85 when it wasn't really understood what autistic women looked like um, or, yes. or non-stereotypical presentations of autism looked like. So I was completely missed. So I had a lot of challenges growing up. Um, but I was kind of just the weird quirky kid as opposed to, or the awkward kid, as opposed to an autistic person. And then, you know, if you fast forward, um, got through college, worked, met my partner, decided to have kiddos. And our first child, we realized pretty quickly was showing some of the more stereotypical indications of autism, like um, okay. delayed gross motor skills, delayed fine motor skills, talking late, that kind of stuff. And so we brought them in for evaluation and in doing all the research to kind of assess him on my own before I decided what our next step should be medically. Um, I realized that there was a whole slew of presentations and traits associated with autism that I displayed, that other folks in my family displayed that, um, you know, were just, I guess, not really known well about in, in 85 when I was born and then when I was in high school and stuff. And I started to also see this was, you know, he was born in 2013 and there was still a dearth of resources in terms of autism for adults on, on the internet, but people had started creating blogs and creating content about their experiences as women with autism um, or just 
you know, people with non-stereotypical presentations of autism. And I started to really see like, oh, <laughs> all these things that I thought were just me being weird are actually a presentation of a whole group of people. And mm -hmm. it's not just me being the weird one or being difficult. I was also often labeled difficult. Um, I have challenges related to transitions. Um, I need to know to be able to plan ahead. I have a lot of anxiety with, you know, mm -hmm. plans changing. Um, what else? Like all sorts of sort of common once you know it's autism, it's like, oh, obviously that's related right. to that. But if you're just on your own and you don't have that label, at least for me, I know there's a lot of stigma against labels nowadays, but for some of us, the label is really validating because it's like, oh, I'm in a whole group of people who have similar challenges and have ways to uh, engage with those challenges and overcome them or change their lives so that they're not so challenging, as opposed to it being just me being difficult in a quarter by myself, you know, without the diagnosis. So yeah. Danielle, so, do you think mm -hmm. it was freeing? Do you think that it gave you like the past that you needed to actually be able to start working on the tools to um, support yourself in life? Absolutely. So before I was diagnosed autistic, I had, you know, had been in mental health care for a while and had been sort of misdiagnosed with depression, with generalized anxiety disorder, with um, the baby blues, postpartum depression. Um, and none of those were actually, it turns out, particularly good labels for what I was going through. I was going through autistic burnout because I didn't have the tools. And so once I under started to understand what autism looked like for me and that these were traits and that I needed to start planning around these, as opposed to trying to just overcome by sheer will, like, um, like a lot of us are taught to like, just try harder. You're just lazy. You're just not trying hard enough. You're just not focusing, right? That kind of self-talk language. Um, once I realized that none of that was true, all of that was kind of hogwash and I was trying really hard and it just wasn't working because I didn't have the tools. Then it was a lot easier to be like, okay, well, what do I need to change in my life to accommodate myself and to give myself the power to be the best person I can be, to be the happiest I can be, to have the most success I can. Right. And so without that label, I don't think I, I mean, I hope I would have gotten there, but it would have taken another 30 years maybe, right? Um, because there's just not a recognition, I think, that some of us who are struggling are struggling for a reason. There's always this idea that you should just be trying harder, you know, and it's right. easy to internalize that and think, oh, it's just a me problem as opposed to a, you know, a societal problem of accommodation, of education, of no, people being able to recognize you for who you are. I so identify with this as somebody who, you know, never got diagnosed with ADD. It was just like, why can't I just do this? Why can't I just power through this? Why can't I just put these pieces together? I'm so smart. I, I'm, you know, really like brilliant in so many ways. Mm -hmm. You know, why can't I just get through this stuff in law school? Why can't I just X, Y, whatever, you fill in the blank. So I really identify with this, you know, and I always felt like whatever was going on, this is my fault. I'm just not, you know, I'm just not doing what other people can do, you know, and, uh, you know, again, I'm just not trying hard enough. I'm just, you know, why can't I put the same study guides together that other people are doing? And between the dyslexia and the ADD, I was a mess. And so, you know, finding out that, it was just, I just needed to do something different. And then stuff started to fall into place. It was so freeing for me, but we don't get that kind of support from the outside, you know, because we really 
are trying to be fit into that same box that everybody else is in. Um, and it's kind of like this old adage, right? That if you're not learning, it's not your fault. It's the person teaching you. You know, they if they can't teach you something and they're the teacher, it's their fault, not your fault. You know, they just always want to say, well, you didn't learn it, so it's your fault. But that doesn't mean that you can't learn. Everybody can learn. There's such a teeny, tiny, tiny percentage of the population that can't learn at, you know, the average person's rate. And we always want to blame the, the learner, not the educator. So anyway, I'm going off on my soapbox. Oh, no, I think I think you're really right. I think especially when you've had if you're you know, I've I've met folks. I work with a lot of late identified autistic people. That's, you know, outside of the parent coaching, our sort of primary coaching population. And, you know, people are sometimes caught in their 20s or 30s, but a lot of folks are caught in their 50s, their 60s, their 70s when their grandkids are caught. And it's like these folks have had 60 years of this internalized shame self-talk about how they're not good enough. It's really hard to break. I mean, you can break it, right? You can, you can make changes to your self-talk as uh, you know, we all grow through the length of our lifespans, but when it's been integrated for that long, and even me at 30, it was really hard to be like, oh, it's not me. It's, it's the society, right? It's that it's not built for me, right? That the challenges I'm facing are because I'm living in a world that is really not structured <laughs> for my particular kind of brain. Um, and when I talk to folks who come into my practice, um, a lot of them are struggling with that same internalized stuff. Like they're looking at the person next door or the mom at school pickup or the, you know, the people at church and seeing they can do all these things. Why can't I do this thing? And mm -hmm. it's like, you can't either. There's two, two options. One, you can do that thing. We just need to frame it differently for you, right? We need to put supports in place for you. Or second, you don't, you can't do that thing because you don't need to do that thing because you're not a neurotypical person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're, they have stuff that's built for them. You know, we're going to perform differently. And because we are different, our brains are different. We function differently. We need different things. And there's not a, um, you need to start being able to value yourself as a different person, right? There's all this internalized ableism of, of we're not as valuable as the people that we're comparing ourselves to, but we're just as valuable. We have just as many strengths. It's just, you know, whether society sees them or not, right? I, I would say that's society's problem, right? That's the, the teacher analogy again. That's, you need to focus on your strengths and what you can do and how you bring the best forward and try not to worry about the people next door, which is hard. It's hard. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah. Yes. You're so right. Well, that's why the things that you're doing here are so important. So audience, I'm just gonna give you a, a short list of some of the things that Danielle does in her practice. She's a certified parent coach. She's a certified life coach. She's a certified solution-focused coach, which is so important. Positive psychology coach and transformational coach. And then something near and dear to my heart because in my family, we have experienced a lot of trauma. She's a certified trauma-informed specialist, and there are not enough people who understand trauma and come from a place of trauma-informed therapy or trauma-informed coaching. So the work that she's doing in her coaching is coming from this place of positivity. 
And it's not, you know, square peg, round hole. It's taking you on this journey that, you know, we, a journey that suits us in our individuality. So Danielle, talk to us about all these great positive things that you're doing. Why don't we start with how you're coaching parents? Because this is so important. You're going to keep us from making the same mistakes that our families did, but they didn't know because they didn't have us, right? So they didn't understand. The people that were supporting them were not teaching them and helping them and coaching them for this generation. So tell me about your coaching for parents and families. Absolutely. So I think, as you just said, that a lot of parents, um, many of us come into it and just sort of replicate what our parents did. Um, and and many of us, you know, we quote unquote turned out fine, right? Um, and so there's there's not an obvious reason to change what you're doing. Um, but we have a lot more research on parenting and you know, child uh, mental health outcomes with certain kinds of parenting now than we did in the 80s when I was born. Um, And I think that especially when you have neurodivergent children and there's all this, they're up against the ableism of the world and the idea that unfortunately they are often not considered as valuable as humans as everybody else in the world, which is awful, but is often the case, right? Like how many of us had have had to go into IEP meetings fighting um, oh. to get basic, like basic supports for our kiddos, right? Um, I think that it's important to, part of the reason I, I went for that trauma-informed um, piece is because so many of my adult neurodivergent clients are presenting with trauma just from being neurodivergent in a neurotypical world. And kiddos, unfortunately, are um, experiencing similar things, especially in the past couple of years with everything <laughs> in the wider world that's going on. Um, so what we do at Neurodiverging is we tend to advocate, it depends on the family, right? Um, but we tend to advocate for a style of parenting called collaborative parenting, um, which is a, um, a democratic parenting process mm-hmm. where we're removing a lot of the sort of authoritarian vibes and hierarchy from parenting, that automatic assumption that the adult is always right and the child mm-hmm. should just follow what they say, which I'll be honest, does not work for most neurodivergent kids anyway. Right. <laughs> um, in, in terms of what I see, right. I'm sure there are parents out there who are parenting this way, who will have uh, raised beautiful children. Um, but at least the because- parents who show up and need coaching they yeah, get it's labeled working. oppositional, but really uh-huh. what they are is they're they're they need explanations. They need they ask why and they need to understand reasons and rationale. And they they need explanations. Mm-hmm. And so if you don't take the time to talk through, then there's no getting them from A to B. Absolutely. Not every kid, but, you know, kids, certain kids. I know I was one of those kids, you know, so, so, right. So, and getting back to the IEPs, Mm -hmm. we talk a good game, but we really don't understand how to individualize education. And that's the problem that we have. Yeah. So, um, and hence the trauma. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, I am. Um, please continue. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that a lot of the, pa- 
the parents I work with, their kiddos have been given labels like oppositional defiance or pathological demand avoidance, or sometimes just difficult, quote unquote, right? A challenging child who has challenging behaviors. Um, and first of all, in my experience, a lot of behaviors come down to um, either anxiety, like kiddo doesn't know what to expect and isn't being given enough information. And on top of that, kiddo might have slower than average processing and just need more time. And parent is rushing, right? Parents, we get really stuck in our day-to-day -day rituals of, no, yeah. we need to make it to the grocery store. We need to make it to school on time. We need to do all these things. And for a slower processing kiddo, that can be tough. I was one of them. I'm still one of them. I don't process particularly quickly. I need to set aside time in my day to like reflect and think through and assess what I'm feeling, which is pretty common for neurodivergent people of all stripes. Um, not everybody, but many of us. And if you don't build in that time for a kiddo, you're going to be dealing with three-hour tantrums when you could have spent 20 minutes explaining to them what's going on and why you think it's important, right? And so I think parents in their rush actually create um, more difficulty, unfortunately, in a way that they don't often recognize until we intervene and say, try, try it this way for a week and see what happens, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. But the the anxiety piece for a lot of neurodivergent kids and the processing piece and then the sensory challenges piece are, I think, three big aspects of your kiddo's life that a lot of especially neurotypical parents are not really thinking about. Um, yeah. And once you start to think through or talk to your kiddo about their experience of those things, you can really start to dig out like, what are these behaviors responding to? Because behavior is communication, right? So the behavior is a symptom of a problem. It's not the problem in and of itself. So we're going to look at the behavior as what is the kiddo trying to say in the only way they can? And can we help them solve the problem so that the behavior just, it just goes away, you know? Yeah. Can you give so, us an example? Sure. Um, let me think of, um, I'll use my daughter who, when she grows up, is going to have feelings about the, the story I always tell. Um, but when she was three, so she's um, now diagnosed ADHD combined type. So hyperactivity and the inattentive for whatever that's worth. Um, and she's dyspraxic. So she doesn't, her body doesn't know where it is in space all the time. Um, and when she was very young, um, she used to have, she has high sensory needs um, and has sensory processing disorder is like the label for it. But um, some of her senses are very, over vigilant, hyper vigilant, and some of them are hypo. Like she cannot, she doesn't notice cold. She goes out in the winter in a sundress, like that kind of thing. So her body signals are really confused. Anyway, when she was very young, she used to have these two hour long tantrums over things like putting on her shoes to get out the door, putting on her socks because the socks didn't feel good on her feet because she has all these sensory challenges. But she's she was so little that she couldn't tell me like the sock feels weird, right? Um, so we yeah. would just sort of have this, we'd get into a stalemate over it where I was like, we need to get out the door to go pick up your brother or to go to an appointment. And she was just like, I can't, I'm not going to wear my shoes. And so she would kind of just collapse on the ground yelling for hours and hours and hours. Cause she's one of those where once she gets herself started, she just goes and there was yeah. no way to interrupt a tantrum. I'll, you know, I don't mean a tantrum in the sense of, you know, is acting out on purpose, but that She's completely dysregulated. Every every coping skill she has has been exhausted, right? And right. then you get the behavior. The behavior is the what looks like a tantrum on the floor. Um, once I started using collaborative parenting, because I started with a, the sort of standard authoritative, you know, gentle, but parent is still in charge kind of style. Um, and then switched when I had my second child because she needed 
kind of radical, <laughs> differently parenting. Um, so when I started with collaborative parenting, I remember, um, you know, sitting with her and being like, I know sometimes the shoes are hard. Can you tell me more about it? And actually trying to solve the problem, like just figuring out like which part of it is challenging, right? What if we try different shoes? What if we try different socks? What if we don't wear socks to the grocery store? Like, is that an option for you? Um, and it took a while, like, you know, it probably took a half an hour the first time of sitting there talking with her about it, which when you're in a rush feels like a lot, but it, it, it solved the problem. It made me realize, oh, she's not being defiant or challenging on purpose. She's not having a tantrum for attention or whatever they tell you in those parenting books. Yeah. It's like the socks hurt her feet. And if we can get rid of the socks or otherwise solve the problem, she's not going to have a tantrum anymore. And she's going to hear, feel heard and validated that I care about her experience of the world and that the socks are hurting her. And then I can, you know, we can solve for future problems right now. We can say, well, the next time we go to the store, what should we try? Right. Um, yeah. And it, so it's, it's kind of like you have to radically slow down, but that's an example of the behavior that parents come in with is every time we have to put on shoes, she stalls, she yells, she whatever. And it's like, okay, that behavior is important to know, but it's the communication about the problem. What is the problem? Right. And that's what we're looking to solve. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. All right. Good. Wow. Yeah. I mean, this is so bringing up stuff for me. Oh yeah. my God. I'm having like massive feelings of guilt right now. You oh no. no idea. Parents well, are always but, doing the best they can. You did oh the best you could for where yeah. you were. Whatever it is. Kids and single parenting. And, you know, one of mine was in a wheelchair and the other one was very difficult. And of course, you know, I didn't know how, how odd I was, you know, and I'm remembering screaming at my toddler while my other one was in a chair, like waiting for me to get her ready and trying to get everybody out to school and, Mm -hmm. you know, just yelling at my three-year-old, put on your shoes, put on your shoes put on your shoes, you know, and the tears are streaming down her face. Mm -hmm. And my kid in the wheelchair, her nurse is looking at me like she was going to call CPS on me, you know, like, why are you screaming at your three-year-old? And I'm like, because this one has to get to school and this one has to get to school and I have to get to work. And, you know, I'm about to get fired because I'm late every Mm -hmm. single day. And, you know, you have no idea what this is like. You know, like every day, every day, I have an ulcer every day Mm -hmm. (laughs) trying to do everything. And do I want to be screaming at my three-year-old? No, but like, why, why am I every day screaming, you know? Um, And right now I want to cry just thinking about it. I really did you back then, Danielle. (laughs) Where where were you when I needed you? (laughs) We did. I, you know, I think every parent, and I think about my parents who were, overall, really good parents doing the best they could. They didn't know what to do with me. I was like a weird, difficult kid in the early nineties, you know, and I think they supported me the best they could, but could I hold up every parenting decision they made as like the, the, you know, the great first place of parenting? No, like, and I think even, and I'm a, you know, I'm a parent coach and I can give you all this information, these examples, but to say like, I've never yelled at my kids, like I'm way better at it nowadays, but when they were little, it is hard. And if you're a single parent, if you're dealing with pressures, external pressures, like it's really challenging. And it's really easy to hear me sit here and be like, you have to sit there and talk to them about the sock. Like some days you can do that, but some days you can't, right? And we have to give ourselves grace. Like we're doing the best we could. We're, we care about our kids, right? Any parent who's listening to this podcast cares about their kids. Like 
you're doing a good job. It's it's gonna, you know, and maybe you need additional tools, right? Um, but it's just the the information. So many of the parents I work for, I'm gonna back up, sorry. So many of the parents I work with have been researching their butts off, trying to find strategies to support their kids and still have not bumped into the, the parenting style that you know, we support for, especially for PDA kids, anxious kids, um, stressed out kids. I also think that parents have no support, especially nowadays with everything going on politically. And, you know, a lot of us, we, we can't stay regulated. We can't calm ourselves down because nobody's helping us. Like we don't get breaks. Money is always a challenge. Childcare is always a challenge. Getting your spouse on board is sometimes a challenge, right? And those are real difficulties that make, you know, that make it reasonable that parents are having trouble. It doesn't mean, again, it's it's society isn't supporting you. It doesn't mean you are a bad person, right? right? Or you are a bad parent. It means you are not being given the supports that you deserve as a parent, especially if, you know, if you're a woman often, you know, you have all this stuff against you. So you got to just do the best you can. We've talked about this on the podcast (laughs) before. And you, you say this too, that I think the number one thing is regulating yourself first. Oh yes, mm-hmm. that's the first thing we teach. Children, yeah, so you mm-hmm. can't expect your children to regulate themselves until you regulate yourself. Yeah, and then you know, and then you can help them regulate themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I want you to talk to us about your your top tips for families. So tell us, what are the things that you, your number one things that you teach families or even adults, you know, facing these challenges, Mm -hmm. what would you want us to take away with us today? Yeah, I think regulation is a huge piece. And I would say that that's probably the first thing that we check in about when we work with either families or adults is, are you constantly overwhelmed, irritable, upset, you know, hair, hair trigger yelling? at anyone. Um, And sometimes we give homework, which can be really fun, which is think about, spend like, you know, even 10 or 15 minutes, if you have it, think about things that make you feel good, right? And these can be things that take 10 seconds or things that take 10 minutes, right? If you have a deep breathing routine you like, if you like a bath, you know, those sort of silly magazine self-care tactics. Mm -hmm. But also I've had people say, I really like, I feel very relieved when I crack nuts and they make that sound and there's this textural component, right? Make a list of things that make you feel happy and calm and, and either make a list and put it like on your computer desktop or on your fridge or somewhere you can see it. Or sometimes people like to make collages, like you can make Pinterest collages or whatever, right? Of the things you like, petting your cat, getting a heavy blanket, drinking water, right? Um, Singing, whatever it is. Um, And keep that regulation list around where you can access it when you're getting overwhelmed. Because if you practice breathing or singing or going to find your nuts or your heavy blanket or your cat (laughs) when you're feeling dysregulated, and first of all, you're going to start to get more regulated and to be able to notice before you start yelling or breaking down or crying or whatever your response is. Second, your kids are going to go see you using your tools, right? And they're going to start to think, we want to model for our children always. Kiddos pick up what you model. So if they see you take your deep breath and go crack some pistachios because you're upset (laughs) instead of yelling, they're going to start thinking, well, what are my tools? Right. And they're going to start trying to regulate with you. And that can 
diffuse a tense situation like nothing else. Um, and so one of the, yeah, one of the common homeworks I give people that maybe podcast listeners would like to try, you can be really creative with it. You can like, you know, if you have time, like draw a picture, um, write a journal entry, whatever your art of choice, make a song, write up some song lyrics about it, right? That's also good with kiddos because then you can sing the regulation song together if you have particular things your family's like. Um, so that's a piece that I really strongly encourage folks to to try is to just think through what makes you feel better, looking at the fish, stepping outside for two seconds, right? Um, thinking about a forest that you visited when you were 12 with your family, right? Whatever it is. Um, yeah. And and use those things, you know? Um, I also just encourage folks to look at behaviors as communication. It's a trait saying in the um, parenting world, but it's true, especially with neurodivergent kiddos, especially with kids with additional labels. Yes. The behavior is the signal. It's not the problem in and of itself. 99.9% of the time, the behavior is the signal. So it's trying to tell you something. Your kiddo is communicating with the tools they have. They're not great tools, but they're yeah. dysregulated. They're immature nervous systems. They're kids, right? So we have to- What they have learned to, so far, yeah. Exactly. So we have to work with them. We have to help dig under and figure out what's going on for them and, and try to solve the problem. Yeah. And you're working with clientele all over the world at this mm -hmm. point, right? Yep. And yep. you do that through um, through Zoom-based tools and... Yeah, we're a virtual practice. So we do work with, right now we're mostly English speaking. So that is a limitation. Um, but we work through Zoom, Google Meet, phone, um, Skype, whatever. And um, we have several coaches on staff. We work... Um, again, primarily with late identified neurodivergent people who are having difficulty in kind of any aspect of their life. And then also with, with parents of mixed neurotype families. So if some folks are neurotypical and some are neurodivergent, um, we'll work with you to improve communication and understanding among family members to solve your problems. So what is that first step when people are feeling like they're maybe at the end of their rope or at the edge of the cliff? Mm -hmm. What is the first step that they should take? That regulation piece. If you're neurodivergent, we have a short list in my house, which is eat, sleep, pee, because a lot of us don't have, it sounds trite, but a lot of us don't have those internal mechanisms of recognizing what our bodies are doing. And so if you're at a place where you're feeling like you don't know what your next step is, have a snack, take a nap if you can, go to the bathroom, see how you feel. Um, but then after that, we're looking at um, what are your strengths and where are you using them in life? Mm -hmm. Are you being able to use them? Like a lot of us have huge strengths, but are in office environments where we're not being able to use them or, you know, we're parenting child children with high needs and we're not being allowed to use our strengths. And so um, one of our first steps is always looking at like, well, where can you feel confident and good about what you bring to the world? Do you know what your values are? Do you know what's important to you? Are you able to enact your values in the world? Or have you sort of somehow gotten into a point in life where you're not living your values? You know, that will make anyone feel crappy. Excuse, excuse oh, the language. So cool. And so, yeah. yeah. And so we're, you know, we're based in positive psychology. So if you're familiar with that framework, but it is very value oriented and strengths-based. Like, what do you want to be living for, right? If you're here for this amount of time, what are your values? And how can we make sure that we're highlighting those places in your life for you to put your energy? 
Um, and so we're getting rid of stuff too. Like we're, you know, we're sort of doing an audit and saying, well, this isn't working for you. This isn't working for you. Here's some coping skills. But the sort of long picture is how do we help you see what's valuable to you and how, how can you engage in that in a way that feels good and positive and makes you feel like you're here for a reason, you know? And how do people know that they are connecting with the right coach for them? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always encourage people to do a lot of coaches offer free discovery calls or which are short sessions where you can, it's a meet and greet, right? You can ask questions. You can ask about the policies. You can ask about the coach's background. I always encourage folks to check out a couple of different coaches, right? You, um, you have, uh, I've forgotten the word, but you have the privilege to, you know, research and spend as much time as you want. Mm-hmm. Um, I always tell people if, I didn't answer your question, or if you're not sure, or if you go away and you come back next month, I'll offer you a second free call. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I want people to feel like there's a good fit. You want to make sure that the coach um, seems to understand your point of view, right? So many autistic people, for example, I'll speak for us, um, are used to non-autistic people not really getting our worldview, which is not to say that a neurotypical coach is not going to be a good fit for an mm-hmm. autistic, but that you know, it's okay to ask questions to make sure that they're going to represent, they're going to be able to accept where you are in your life and what you're doing and not try to shove you into some other mold, sure. right? Sure. Um, so ask questions about that. Um, be willing to ask for referrals. Like if the discovery call coach you're talking to is, you know, they, I know tons of other neurodivergent coaches, right? And my goal is to make sure the client has a good fit. So if you're talking to me and you don't think it's a good fit or you're not sure, ask me for referrals to other people who do the same kind of work I do. And most coaches will want you to have the best positive experience with a coach, right? Sure. And not necessarily be trying to close you on, you know, come, come spend your money here. Like that yeah. shouldn't be a coach's goal. Um, yeah. And it's, ask about the certifications, you know, what yes, does it that's, mean to be a certified life coach? What does mm-hmm. it mean to be a certified positive psychology coach? You know, yes. what does that certification mean? Mm-hmm. Um, those sorts of things are important too. It's absolutely true. And in the United States, there's not a primary body that offers certification for coaching. And so coaches who are certified may have gone through really good programs or may have gone through kind of not as great ones. And so it's okay to like ask them where they got trained. Um, ask them, you know, what the school's name is, do your research on that. And a lot of us have done additional training, right? Um, and not to say that again, an entry-level coach is not going to be a great fit for you because there's a lot of really good coaches, but right. just, you know, do your legwork and and be willing to ask questions about our training and what we think and what what our goals are for our clientele, those kinds of things. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's so great. So I know that it, it can be really hard to find that right fit for people, you know, whether it's mental health or coaching or anything in this field. But once mm-hmm. you find that relationship, it is gold. For yes, sure. absolutely. absolutely. Well, it's worth taking the time to research it, it a little bit. It yeah. so is. And, um, you know, I, I have learned so much from this conversation. Thank you. I always That's say so that I am just the luckiest person on the planet that I get to do this podcast because I get to talk to all the people that I'm in on the subjects that I'm interested in and I get to learn so much. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving your time to our audience today. Thanks so much for having me in it. I hope it was helpful for folks. I'm really glad to be here. And if you want to check out the neurodiverging.com website, Danielle's got all sorts of 
good stuff posted there. And we'll also have her Facebook and her Instagram and her Twitter accounts. She's also on LinkedIn um, and we'll post her other um, connections there as well. So you can reach her any which way you'd like. I really encourage you to check her out. She's so sweet and so awesome. And as, as she says, if she's not the right fit for you, she will definitely help get you connected with somebody that can help you. So yeah. thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom today. I really appreciate it. Have thank you so much, great, Annette. Great afternoon. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I just wanted to take a second to say how much I appreciate you taking the time to listen to these podcasts. I'm having a blast doing them, and I hope that you're finding the content to be what you were really hoping. If you are, please take a second to leave a rating and a review. It's so helpful in getting this content out to people who really need to hear it. Thank you so much.